Well, hello, everyone. I am That Weems Guy here for episode 21 or 22, I think it is. Uh, I'll look that up and put it in the title. Joining me tonight is Shane Gosa. And uh, I got to tell you, I'm shocked because Shane was on time. I thought I was going to have to send a team to kidnap him and uh, get him in front of the his computer for us to do this episode. But he actually texted me a few minutes before the time we were supposed to start. So I'm in a little bit of a state of shock tonight that, uh, that Shane was on time. Uh, I first met Shane, I believe at the tactical conference in 2014, at which time he was doing a presentation on Cooper's color codes. And I sat in on that lecture. And then afterwards uh, he introduced himself and we've been friends ever since. And uh, Shane, say hello to everybody. Hey everybody. How are y'all? Shane has a very interesting background is that he has basically grown up in this whole so-called tactical world, whatever uh, application world, whatever you want to call it. Um, He started as a teenager in a very historical place and made a lot of very interesting lifelong connections that go back to some of the big names in firearms history. Shane, uh, first tell everybody uh, a little bit about yourself and how you got started on this path. Like uh, Lee said, my name's Shane uh, Gosa, and I have been a police officer, peace officer in Georgia since I was 18 years old. In Georgia, you can do that and carry a gun at 18 as long as by your 18th birthday, you've graduated the police academy. So for the last 22 years, I've been a sworn peace officer in Georgia. Uh, still do that part-time. Currently, I work for a company doing sales, and I've got a bunch of other jobs and whatnot. Um, but started training formally in firearms when I was 15 years old and have been doing it ever since. And so I've got a lot of training and uh, a lot of classes from a lot of different places. And I think that's what uh, Lee and I are going to get into here just shortly. All right. Now, as I remember, your grandfather was OSS. Is that correct? He was. Uh, so he had, and we'll see as it progresses, he had a completely different view on a lot of stuff than some of the training I've had. Uh, he didn't talk a lot about it until he got older and was right. in his last few years, but uh, he was assigned to the cabinet war rooms for a while during World War II. Um, he did some stuff out in the countryside, accompanied Churchill on some joint stuff with him and the RAF. Uh, for those of you that are not familiar, OSS was the precursor to the modern CIA. That's correct? Yes, sir. Uh-huh. All right. So when you were 15, you found out about a guy named Jeff Cooper, and then you wanted to take training with him, and your grandfather took you to train? It was, yes, sir. Uh, so it actually started before that, and I don't know that you and I have ever talked about that, but mm-hmm. um I started developing interest in firearms and whatnot when I was around 12. And my father had a friend uh, that was a weapon sergeant with the 7th Special Forces Group. And so he started taking me to the range. And, you know, basically that was just marksmanship and uh, gun safety and whatnot. He was a big point shooter, uh, instinctive shooting, whatever you want to call it. And so I had a little bit of experience with him in that aspect of it, which got me more interested in the guns and started, of course, you know, looking at supermarkets, finding magazines and whatnot, and came across Guns and Ammo. And in the back of Guns and Ammo every month, uh, there was Cooper's Corner. 
and Cooper's Corner was the snippets of something called Gunsight Gossip, which Jeff Cooper wrote every month and published to family members or people that had been to Orange Gunsight or had received training from him somewhere else or his friends and relations. So he put out this newsletter and mail it out every month. And Guns and Ammo, because he was the editor at large of that magazine, would take snippets of this and they would publish it. And so I started reading his Cooper's Corner and found out who this Jeff Cooper guy was and uh, found out he had books. And so the very first book of his I ever bought was uh, called To Ride, Shoot, Straight, and Speak the Truth. And this was in the mid-90s, and he'd already sold Gunsight to someone else, and there'd been some issues with that, and he uh, he still lived at the Sconce, which was his house on Gunsight Ranch, but he was barred from the ranges and teaching there. So I had called out, actually, at 15, I had called out to Gunsight and asked about training with Jeff Cooper, and they told me he was retired and that... Uh, he didn't teach anymore. He didn't have anything to do with that. And then a few months later, in the back of Guns and Ammo in Cooper's Corner, there was a little ad that said, hey, you can train with Jeff Cooper. Uh, call this number, so on and so forth. So I called the number and found out that he was teaching classes at the NRA's Whittington Center. And he was basically teaching two types of classes. One was General Pistol, which would be the Gunsight 250. And the other was General Rifle, which would be the Gunsight 270. And so I wanted to go train with him. And so at 15 years old, um, my grandfather, they told me that, you know, if you're not eight or not 21, you have to have an adult accompany you. So my grandfather said, yes, I'll take you out there. And that's a story in and of itself. Um, I knew from reading Cooper that the best handgun in the world uh, was a 1911 45. And so I had to have a 1911 to go out there and train with him. And I didn't have a 1911. I uh, had pretty much had experience with a Ruger Mark II, uh, Smith & Wesson Mall 19 Combat Magnum, a uh, few various other revolvers, and uh SIG P220 Classic 45. So my father and I went to a gun store, and we got a Springfield Mill Spec 1911 A1. And I knew that I couldn't just take that out there because there were some things the gun needed, such as sights you could see and a trigger you could manage and a dehorning job and complete reliability. So I decided that I needed to have that gun modified. So from reading these gun magazines, I figured, hey, Novax is the best 45 shop in the world. I'm going to send my gun there. And I just read an article uh, on a gun that Joe Bonar had worked on. And Joe Bonar at the time was the head of the Novax 45 shop. So at 15 years old, I called up to Parkersburg, West Virginia and said, hey, I need to speak to Mr. Bonar. And he says, he's speaking, what do you need? And I said, well, I got a 45 and I need some work done on it. And I want this, 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 this. And uh, he said, okay, kid, send it to me and I'll get to work on it. I said, well, I need it back in a month. And he started laughing at me. He said, kid, I build guns for the special forces. I build them for the FBI. I do all this. What makes you think I'm going to turn a gun around to you in a month when I've got a year and a half wait on it? And I said, well, I'm going to train with Jeff Cooper. And he got quiet and he said, when? And I told him, he said, send it to me. I'll have it back to you. He did a full house custom in two weeks. And I still have that gun. Uh, so he sent that back to me. 
and uh, my grandfather and I flew out to Texas and to get to New Mexico and we flew into maybe Amarillo. Um, the colonel had a guy by the name of uh, Tom, and I'm sorry, I can't remember his last name. Um, it's Tom Russell, Tom Russell. Tom Russell was a preacher and he was teaching for Jeff Cooper uh, at the time. So Tom Russell actually met us at Amarillo and my grandfather never had credit cards. He paid for everything in cash and checks. And he decided that we were going to rent a car. Well, the rental agency would not rent us a car without a credit card. So we had no idea what to do. Tom Russell actually let us use his credit card to rent a car. Uh, never met us before in his entire life. And he gave us his credit card to rent a car. We got our car and we drove on out to uh, Whittington Center, which is outside of Raton, New Mexico. And there's probably about 20 people in the class. I remember there's a Green Beret and I remember that there was a high-ranking uh, U.S. Marshal from the Pennsylvania Territory in it, a um, bunch of other people in it. And at that class, um, the colonel had uh, Larry Larson, who was an old gun sight instructor that was helping him. And he had a guy named Doug Knox and he had Tom Russell and a few other guys. So I went through the colonel's class at 15 out of the uh, Whittington Center, which would basically be the gun sight 250. And that's where I formally learned how to shoot with a 1911 uh, 45. And I got to corresponding with the colonel um, by letters. And one of the things a lot of people don't know about the colonel is he didn't own a computer. Uh, that might be obvious, but <laughs> he never owned a computer, but he didn't write letters. He didn't type letters. Uh, he didn't write books. He didn't type any of this stuff. What he did was he had a dictaphone and he would record everything and then he would give it to his secretary and his secretary would then type everything out. Uh, something else people may not have known, but Jeff Cooper had his own dictionary because Webster's did not have the correct definition in it for some of the words, and they also did not have certain words that existed that he created. So he had his own dictionary that his secretary used to proofread his letters and books. And so I kept corresponding with the colonel, and uh, through that, um, he put me on to some other instructors, uh, such as Louis Arbuck. I wanted to learn shotgun the same year that I learned pistol from him. And uh, he said, I, I don't do shotgun. I just do rifle and pistol. If you want to learn shotgun, go to Louis Arbuck. He's the best in the world. And so when I was 15 years old, uh, this time my father drove me to North Carolina. And I went through a shotgun class with Louis Arbuck. And uh, the colonel and I kept corresponding back and forth, back and forth. And then I guess around 2000, uh, Buzz Mills had bought Gunsight, and the colonel was back on staff. So myself and a good friend of mine who is passed now that used to be the chief of America's James Green drove from America's Georgia to Gunsight, and he took something called the Senior Law Enforcement Executive Program, which was basically uh, something they had for people that made decisions at agencies, and it was two days pistol, two days carbine, one day shotgun, and it was free. If you provided travel, lodging, and ammo and food, they give you the class for free so that they could get the gun sight doctrine back to agency. So James took that, and I took the 270 general rifle. 
And I visited with the Colonel a little bit uh, then. And then around 03, 04, uh, when he was getting up in years some more, and we'd started corresponding even more back and forth by a letter, I said I was going to go out there. And so I, I went out to Gunsight for about three or four months that time, the next time. And I just basically lived out there, and I took uh, – 350 intermediate, 499 advanced, 270 general rifle again. Um, took 223 basic carbine, 556 uh, advanced carbine. Took carbine tactical problems. Uh, I think concealed weapons and some other stuff. And then after that, I'd go back and visit him from time to time. And then after he passed away, I went out and saw Mrs. Cooper from time to time. Um, another part of all of this history that uh, I don't think you and I have ever talked about was after I trained with the Colonel, but before I trained with Louis Arbuck, uh, I took a class at front sight back when it was in Bakersfield, California. And at the time, uh, Mark Fleischman, who was an LAPD guy was on staff, but the, uh, the head of training there was Chuck Taylor. And Chuck Taylor has an old history with Gunsight, and uh, he and the colonel in Gunsight had parted ways when he formed the American Small Arms Academy. But I'd read Chuck Taylor's books, too, and to a degree, I wanted to go take his class as well. And so uh, he would give a lecture, and basically he was holding court after he got through with the firearm stuff. You go listen to Chuck Taylor, and, you know, everybody'd sit there and listen to his stories and whatnot. And he used to, before he carried the Glock 17, he made famous for shooting hundreds of thousands of rounds. He carried a uh, Colt commander. I don't remember if it was a lightweight commander or a combat commander. Uh, I just remember it was in 45 and he had a finish on it called Metalloy. Uh, I think it was SS Chromium M, but it was made by a company called Metalloy. And uh, at the time, my 1911 was blued, and I was looking for a different finish for it, and I asked him if he had that, and he whipped it out from under his safari vest and uh, handed it to me, and I dropped his pistol in front of everybody. So I, I dropped uh, Chuck Taylor's pistol, and he just stared at me and handed it back to him, and he, uh, he, would give, he was giving his lecture then, and uh, somebody asked him a question, what's, what's the finest assault rate? This was back in the 90s uh mid 90s and he said what's the finest assault rifle in the world and chuck said it's it's the ak-47 so here i am 15 years old raise my hand yes well what about the galil and he stared at me and said well yeah that's that's a better gun but it's not quite as common okay so then somebody asked him a question about uh what was the best round for a shotgun to use in heavy brush and he said oh well that would be this type of buckshot. So I raised my hand. He looked at me and said, what? I said, what about flechettes? And he stared at me and said, who are you? And I said, well, I've read all your books. And he just kind of stared at me because all this was in his books, you know. Um, but that was my interaction with Chuck Taylor. Uh, now, when I went back to Gunsight, um, the colonel, I was taking a 270 general rifle. And the colonel uh, called me up to his house and said, well, what are you going to shoot in this uh, class? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm going to shoot a Springfield M1A Scout. And he looked at me like I'd lost my mind. He said, a what? 
And I said, a Springfield M1A Scout. And he said, bring that in there. And so I brought it in and looked at him and he looks at him and said, this is not a Scout because it was a semi-automatic and it couldn't <laughs> make weight and whatnot. And he said, this won't do. Uh, you can't shoot that. Go to the armory and get Sweetheart. And Sweetheart was the prototype. It's Sweetheart 2 actually was the prototype to the Scout rifles. And he said, you're going to shoot that in the class. And I'm like, okay. So I go downstairs to the armory and I get Sweetheart out. And uh, I said, well, I need a sling. And he said, well, there's a sling down there. You know, it just wasn't attached to it because he would put his rifles up on the wall and they had a display. So I went and got a sling and they had uh, very, it's kind of strange to describe them, but there, there were Packmer hammerhead sling swivels. So basically you took is a little reverse T thing and you put, take it and put it into the stock of the rifle and twist it and it would hold in place. And it was a swing swivel. And then to take it off, you just twist it and pull it out. So I take that and uh, I go back to the place that I was staying, which was right next door to him at the time. And I go to uh, assemble the sling on the thing and I'm all happy. I'm like, oh, I got the prototype of the scout rifle. Well, I proceed to mess it up and break the swing swivel. Literally snapped it in two and I'm just staring at him like, it'll be okay because it's got three swivels on here. So I can just use two and use it as a regular sling. So I go to put the next one in and I break that in two as well. And so I'm sitting here staring at the scout rifle and I'm like, at least I didn't break the gun. And so I drive back up to the colonel's house and he looks at me. He's like, what are you doing back? And I said, well, I, I broke your, your sling. And he kind of stared at me and he looked at me and he said, they haven't made these in years. And I'm like, yeah, can I have the last one? I didn't break and I'll have some more fabricated. And he was like, okay. He said, well, I guess you're not using that rifle. And I'm like, no, sir. And he said, okay, go downstairs and get the blazer. And he had just gotten a blazer 93, which uh, was a unique rifle. had a straight pull on the bolt. And um there's not a sear in the gun. It's it's hard to describe, but, uh, describe, but he was very enamored with that gun uh, because of the, the way the trigger worked. And it was a excellently crafted rifle. So I got that, and it had like some $4,000 Schmidt and Bender scope on it. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, I just broke sling swivels, and now I've got Jeff Cooper's Blazer 93. I'm going to mess this up. And so I was worried to death about that. Called my father, and... Uh, sent him the swings sling swivel and he actually custom fabricated a bunch of them based off of that and we sent them back to the colonel but obviously i couldn't have it done in a week so i go off to class with the blazer 93 and some of the gun sight instructors that knew what they were doing were like where'd you get that rifle i'm like oh that's the colonel's and they're staring at me like oh this is going to be great you know so we we start shooting and probably about day two of the class I started having the action bind. So you don't come up and back and then push it forward. You just literally pull it back and forth. Well, it started binding and we couldn't figure out what was going on. So I had to drive up from the range, go back to the sconce, walk in. Mrs. Cooper's like, Hey Shane, it's not lunch. What are you doing here? And I'm like, I broke the Colonel's rifle. And she said, another one. And I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> She said, well, Jeff's up in his office. So I climb up the sterile spir uh, spiral staircase, go up to the top, and the colonel's, you know, dictating out a letter or a book or whatever he was working on at the time. And uh, he said, what's wrong with the rifle? And I'm scared to death at this point. But I said, well, Colonel, it's binding. He said, show me. And I was explaining it to him. 
And he said, okay, well, put it back in the armor. He said, I need to know these things. He said, I'll see if I can get it worked out. And he wasn't mad at all. Uh, he was a lot different than most people thought. Um, he, uh, he was not as hard. He was, he, he was very heavy on doctrine, but he was not necessarily as dogmatic as people make him out to be. Um, he didn't really care um, if you shot a 1911 or a Glock. He didn't really care if you shot Weaver or Isosceles. Uh, he didn't care if you shot a 9mm or a 45. He preferred the Weaver. He preferred a 1911. He preferred 45, and he had reasons for that. But at the end of the day, the way he felt was, this is what works best for me. This is what works best for the students that have reported back to me. This is the way I think you should do it. These are the reasons why. If you don't want to, you don't have to. And he just didn't really care about it. Now, he did poke fun at some stuff. I think that was a... Uh, I think that was his sense of humor because he had a, he had a very good sense of humor. Um, there was a, uh, several interviews Wiley Clapp did, and I wish I could, I was there when he did them off camera and I wish I could, uh, see if those ever got published or not. This was back again, between 0304. It was, uh, prior to the internet taking off, so to speak. Which and, let's bring up that point here for a second. All of this association started from ads in the back of magazines and actual letter correspondence. It's not like now, like we're talking over video phone, or you could just send emails. Like you had to put a letter in the mail. I know it takes three or four days for a letter to get from Georgia to Arizona. It used to be four, yeah. four business days because I actually got to where I would time it. Yeah. And knew when I was going to send one and how long it would take him if he was there to respond back to me. So at the time, it took four days to get a letter to Arizona. Uh, it would take me two days to drive out there. I would start from Georgia and halfway between where I am in Georgia to Gunsight is Shamrock, Texas. Mm -hmm. So I would drive for almost 18 hours, get to Shamrock, Texas, spend the night, get up and drive to Gunsight. Um, but yeah, it, it started in the back of a magazine. Jeff Cooper did not have a computer. Um, he did not have a cell phone. Mrs. Cooper had a cell phone, but it was turned off. So when I say that it was fully charged, it was one of those little Nokia brick phones mm -hmm. and, uh, it was fully charged and she kept it in her purse, but it wasn't turned on. It was only for an emergency, you know? So if you wanted to get in touch with him, you'd have to, either write him or have his home phone number and call him. Uh, they did have caller ID because they would screen the, uh, they would screen the calls and he did have a answering machine, but it was an answering machine that had a tape in it. Huh. So, and he had, he had three TVs. He had a, uh, a little small one in the kitchen uh, that he would watch the news on. Uh, he had a larger screen TV down in the entertainment room. Uh, so he went down the steps in his house and he had the wine cellar, he had storage, he had the library, then he had the game room, entertainment room, which had a pool table and a TV, and then he had his armory off to the right from there. And uh, so then he had, he, had, he had one in his bedroom back when he got uh, older uh, because he couldn't move out of it uh, so much, but uh, the only thing I ever saw him watch was the news right before dinner. And then he and I watched two movies together. Um, one was a racing movie and one was a movie about fencing. 
So like, you know, fighting with fencing foils and whatnot. And I don't remember the names of them, but I've got them written down um, on a bunch of stuff at, at this in the safe at home uh, that has the dates we did this, the date. And what, so what I would do is once we discuss stuff, um, I'd go back to my room and I'd, because a lot of the time I stayed with him at the sconce. So I'd go back to my room and I would write out, this is the date. This is what we talked about. This is what Jeff Cooper said about this, because I figure at some point it was, you know, it was historical at some point that was going to mean something. And it meant a lot to me at the time still does. Um, but that's all in the safe at the house. Uh, so anytime we would do something, um, I'd write down what we did for reference later. Like I got a copy of all the books he had in his library, you know, because I went down there one day and wrote down all the titles of the books and stuff. And I was helping him organize it and whatnot. Um, but it's somewhere, but yeah, he, he barely watched TV at all. And this was back when every month you waited to go get a magazine from the newsstand when they still had uh, guns and ammo, guns, handguns, American handgunners, SWAT, uh, all that. And so, you know, you kind of, you kind of got SWAT for Louis Arbuck's uh, articles and you got guns and ammo for uh, Jeff Cooper's articles and you got American handgunner for the pictures of the really cool guns and everything else. And the other combat handguns I got for the articles yeah. And that was kind of the way I broke it down every month. Now, when you were taking these classes at Gunsight, who were some of the range masters and, and assistant instructors? So, in, and I'm, I'm going to get the numbers wrong somewhat. Uh, 350, the, the range master was Pat Rogers. 499, it was Ed Head and Randy Kane was a assistant instructor. And meeting Randy Kane out there, Randy Kane to me is a protege of Louis Arbucks. He and Louis were very good friends. And um, Louis, who actually got uh, Randy into the business, if I, if I remember correctly. But Randy is uh, one of his fortes, is he does diagnostics better than anybody else that I know of. He can look across the range of a line of students and pick out what each and every one of them is doing wrong or could improve on. Um, and it's very for humble. Our, yeah, for our audience, Randy Kane operates Cumberland Tactics. Uh, you can find them online at guntactics.com. I know he teaches a lot in the Lakeland, Florida area, but he travels. I know he does stuff in Pittsburgh and, and Michigan, and he's got some other classes coming along. He's one of the guys that I really want to uh, get on the range with. Our schedules just never seem to uh to mix but i wanted to, to point our audience to where they could find him while we were talking about him so go ahead shane yes sir um so i met i met randy out there and i think randy was also a um i think he was in the 270 class i did out there as well but i i don't remember on that um but I, I ended up taking some classes from him in the atlanta area and maybe florida uh over the years and so then in 223 that class was giles stock uh the famous stock brothers um ed his brother was still working for an oga at the time and i think he had just gotten back and he came on range but he didn't actually teach that was giles or giles um five five six the uh 
the range master was was either Pat Rogers, I, I think it was Pat, and Jeff Gonzalez might have been an assistant for him, or either Jeff Gonzalez might have been the range master for carbine tactical problems, but he was in one of those two. And uh, then in 270, that's another Jeff Cooper story, um, 270, because it wasn't a Cooper or a Master Series class, but because I was in it, Jeff Cooper was coming to the range to make sure that I was doing correctly and whatnot. So the tricycle would fire up and you'd hear it at the sconce and he'd come zipping down there and everybody'd be like, what is he doing? And I'm like, ah, it's my fault. He's coming to see me. And one of his trips, he brought John Ganaway. And uh, John Ganaway was one of the Colonel's good friends. He was called the line man uh, because of how many lines he had taken in Africa. Um, he's an expert rifleman. Uh, and he he came down there and I was I think I was more nervous of being watched by John Ganaway than I was Jeff Cooper um, because John Ganaway is a very imposing individual very nice uh, very professional but he's very imposing and uh, I knew that on this particular drill we were at 50 yards and it was standing to sitting one round to the eight inch circle of the option target and this is with a, a bolt gun and I think this class I was using a Steyr Scout in it. And so Ganaway came down and was standing over my shoulder, and I was as nervous as I could be. And I went to sitting and I fired a perfect headshot. And um he looks downrange from 50 yards and he says, That's that's a really good shot. And I'm like, well, thank you, sir. He said, But that's not where we were told to shoot now, is it? And I'm like, Oh, just crushed, you know. And he turns around and uh and leave so i've experienced uh that with three people uh the colonel nervous as i could be when he was standing over my shoulder watching me shoot uh john ganaway and then tom gibbons uh tom did that to me in a shotgun class uh, i was doing fine until he walked up behind me and then i was just all over the place uh everybody else i could really care less they've never bothered me but th those three have uh have gotten me uh, on the range they they've actually produced more fear than somebody pointing a pistol at me i've seen tom make somebody's gun malfunction just their sheer will he did it to tim i can't believe that he did it to tim chandler one time when tim was shooting i think a wilson combat 1911 in nine millimeter and that's why uh, it malfunctioned and uh tom walked up to him and said something well i'm amazed that that 1911 and nine millimeter hasn't malfunctioned yet and, and Tim uh, said, oh, it's, it's been working great. And on the very next presentation from the holster and a scored course of fire, it malfunctions. And it's like it was amazing that he could, you know, just had that power just, just to do I, that. Now that you say that, I've had uh, every time Gibbons class I've gone to, I've had a problem with a gun. Mm -hmm. um, first one I ever went to was Craig Douglas, Ed Lovett, and Tom Gibbons called Total Spectrum Defense. It was at the old uh -huh. Memphis facility. Tom did pistol, Lovett did um, snub nose revolver and surveillance, counter surveillance. And Craig, back when he was uh, South NARC and was still operational as a peace officer, did um, his unarmed stuff. And uh, at the time, I was carrying a Kimber uh, that actually worked. Uh, I want to say that Chuck Rogers had done some work on it at the time, but it was a four inch uh, barreled 
bull barreled Kimber bushingless with an aluminum frame. And it just, it ran and ran and ran like a top. And I had it in a thumb brake holster, uh, concealed thumb brake holster. And everything's going fine. Every draw, I'd secure the, the retention device. And, you know, I'd draw from the thumb brake every, every time. Tom comes up to me and he's standing behind me. And I go to draw and the gun will not come out of the holster. I literally had to take the holster out of my belt and cut the strap off of it because it just would not come out. Um, I think I went to, I think it was an advanced, it was either an instruct, basic instructor or advanced instructor class I go to and we're shooting a bullseye target and my group's all over the paper. And he walks up behind me and I realize at some point when I'm checking targets in between or checking the target between strings, something's going on here. So I went to check my sights, my rear sights moving back and forth in the rear channel is a third generation Glock 19 and the sight would literally just drift back and forth in the channel. And so I'm doing the best I can. And, uh, cause I knew better than to, if, unless it was a safety violation, I wasn't going to stop or interrupt him during that class. I was just going to wait until he came up to me and then I'd go switch the guns out and stuff. So he comes up to me and says, uh, what's wrong with your gun? I said, my rear sight's loose. He said, I can tell and just walked off and I'm like, you know, so I, I don't know if he knew that the rear sight was really loose or if he was just saying my shooting was that bad, that had to have been it, you know, yeah. but uh, it's, it's unique to see certain guns not work. Uh, right. 1911s are, are, have a bad reputation in internet years of not being yeah. reliable. Uh, and to a degree, you know, you, you've got, I, I don't go into the whole philosophy of it has to be X number of bullet, X number of magazine, and it has to be fitted this way. And it has to be this. I, I don't go into all that, but I do agree that it has to be a quality gun and it does have to have some quality parts, does have to have a quality magazine, quality ammunition, stuff like that. Um, basic um, minor work to 1911s if it's a quality gun in my experience at least and i probably had 40 or 50 of them but if it's in around the 1200 dollars mark uh 12 to 12 to 1800 dollars mark as long as i'm using a quality manufacturer quality parts and uh decent ammo decent uh magazines i i have not had the problems with 1911 somehow now I have had 1911, I've had one 1911 that cost $6,000 and I couldn't get it to work to save my life, sent it back multiple times and just couldn't get it to work. Um, I've had some Kimbers that I couldn't get to work, but yet I've had other Kimbers that were flawless just straight out of the box. So I think it's kind of a hit or miss. Um, do I think that uh, modern polymer guns are more reliable again it depends but if we're going to look at the numbers of what's out there versus the other um probably for your average shooter somebody that doesn't want to stay on top of spring changes and stuff like that then yeah you're probably better off with a polymer gun uh that's new manufactured because you're going to have less problems out of it than you would a 1911 uh, but this this goes back to I am probably aged more than my physical years being a curmudgeon and whatnot because again I started reading 
articles and magazines and clipping out stuff to call somebody on the phone to go to training. So I kind of expected uh, to do more. You've got people that don't clean the guns after every range trip, um, whatnot. And that Green Beret going back to the beginning that was friends with my father. If we went to the range, I cleaned that gun in the field at the range before we could leave. I could not leave with a dirty gun. So I got in that habit. If it was a magazine, I fill stripped that gun and I cleaned it. I at least wiped it down, you know, and, and relubricated it. So that may be one of the problems, or that might be why I have not had as many problems with certain 1911s uh, as other people. And I'm also pretty, um, I'm pretty strict on what kind of springs I use and, and everything else. And there's, there's a little bit of a formula to it and whatnot. Um, and you're still carrying a 1911 on duty, aren't you? Uh, it depends, but most of the time, yes. In a, um, in a so, Safari Land 070 holster that a very talented gun guy gave that, to you. You, you did. You gave me uh, a leather 070 uh, triple retention holster. And for people that don't know what that is, when you grip the gun, your thumb breaks a thumb break, your middle finger pops back another button, then you rock the gun back so it removes the lock out of the ejection port, then you can draw. And uh, then when you reholster, you still have to pop that first button and pop the thumb strap. Yep. Well, if you're going to so, carry an anachronistic pistol, you got to carry it in an anachronistic holster. That's true. Um, I do have, uh, and of, of course, I'm in a hotel right now traveling for uh, my other job, and I don't have this with me, but I've got some original milk sparks. Uh, I've got Jeff Cooper's, his personal Yaki slide. Uh, I've got a number one AT uh, competition rig that has Jeff Cooper's crest on the front of it, which is JC and a pin and a sword because the pin is mightier than the sword. And on the back, you can see where it was made by Milt Sparks and stamped TK for Tony that, that built the holster and then it stamped JC for Jeff Cooper. Um, and I have also, the way I got that Yaki slide was I had called Milt Sparks because that's what Jeff Cooper carried and that's what I wanted. And uh, I called Milt Sparks and I, I spoke with uh, Mr. Tony and he, uh, he said, we, we don't make those. And I said, well, the Colonel's got a new one. And he said, yeah, I'll make them for Jeff Cooper, but I don't make them for anybody else. They're not a catalog item. And I was kind of perplexed. I was like, well, I wonder why I can't have one, you know? So um, I wrote the Colonel and I said, hey, I want a Yaki slide, but I can't find one and Milt Sparks won't build me one. And I said, do you have any recommendations? And um, he wrote back, you can always check the gun shows. Um, and then he put, I have two of them, but I only use one at a time. I didn't think anything else of it. So the next time I go out there to stay with him, uh, he said, go, in, go into your bedroom. Uh, there's a present on the bed. And there is a Milt Sparks Yaki slide in a brand new plastic uh, bag. And uh, he said, you know, I only have two. I can only wear one. So you have that one. So I'm wearing that around gun site. And uh, I wasn't there for a class. I was just uh, I was just out there to visit him. And gun site, when Jeff Cooper originally bought it, he bought extra land. And that was called Raven Guard. 
And so Raven Guard were empty 40 acre lots and he would sell them to instructors, family members, so on and so forth. But the idea was here's gun sight and Raven Guard is all around it. So he had a barrier between his shooting property and neighbors. So neighbors or anti-gun people couldn't come in and buy up the property and then zone him out. So he developed these little plots and he called it Raven Guard. And so when I would go out there to visit, if I wasn't taking a class from Gunsight, I would go to Jeff Cooper's private range to shoot. And it was called the Cooper Range. And it was the, pretty much the first plot of land. On the left, once you, you drive past, here's, here's the Gunsight main building. And you can go here and that way to the ranges, but there's another road that keeps going straight and that goes back into Ravengorn. And um, some of the older instructors still live out there, I believe. Um, um, my mind's going blank now. He owned Bill Jeans. Bill Jeans used to have a place out there uh, when Pat Rogers was alive. He had a place out there. He didn't have a house on it, but he would literally had an old World War II Willie's Jeep. And he would camp out there, literally camp in a tent, just like it was Vietnam. Uh, and he'd get up every day and he would um, he would run with a Colt Car 15, one of those pencil barreled two position telescopic metal stocks. Uh, and he would he would do his run and PT and stuff out there with that. Uh, then go over to the, the office, take a shower, do his class and whatnot. But he would stay out there on his property. But you had other people that had uh property out there and uh so you had jeff cooper's range and it had a range shack had targets steel targets target frames all this stuff in it so the way it would work is i go out there and i want to shoot and i want to shoot the colonel's guns whether it was his bren 10 or a rifle or my pistol or whatever i'd go out there and shoot but i'd have to go to the front office you walk in and you'd see jane ann who's still out there and uh she does uh, all the media for them now very nice lady but you go out there and, hey, I'm, I'm going to the Cooper range to shoot. And they'd give you a radio and you'd drive over to the Cooper range and you'd run a red flag up the top of it and go on the radio and you'd say, um, Cooper range is hot. And they would acknowledge Cooper range is hot. Then you could shoot on it. Then when you get through with it, you'd run the flag back down, get on the radio, Cooper range is cold. They'd acknowledge you take the radio back to gunsight. Well, at the time, the operations manager out there was Bob Young. Bob Young was a, a colonel of Marines and he was a Mustang. So he'd worked his way up from, you know, uh, basic school to a literal colonel. Mm -hmm. And he is the guy that uh, created and ran the fast units. Um, and uh, he had a very big gun sight background and whatnot, of course, with Jeff Cooper. And so Buzz Mills had hired him as the operations manager. And uh, he's walking around every day with a cold commander and a Yaki slide on a Milt Sparks belt and everything. And so I come be bopping up to the office one day and um, he looks at me and says, um, you need you need something to go with that holster. And I'm like, yes, sir. And so he goes back in his office and he comes back out and he's got a plastic. Uh, he's got a plastic uh, bag and inside of that. He has a magazine pouch and it's a dual mag pouch and hold on one second as luck would have it <laughs> he has a dual magazine pouch now this was two of them put together 
and you cut it straight down the middle. And uh, then you could make singles. So this is actually one of the ones I got from it. It was made by Milt Sparks, and that was their little leather. And it's hard to describe, but it's a plastic, and uh, it's got a basket weave stamp on it. It's for a one and three-fourth inch, and you can't really see down in there, maybe, but there are... There we go. You can see the... I'll get it in a second. That's kind of awkward, but you can kind of see that there are ridges um, right there, there, and then up at the top. And so what those are is they keep the magazine off the body and it allows water to drain out the bottom and it allows less friction. And so you can just, you know, simply just come out, but you can turn it upside down and it's not going to come out. So it's resistant to mildew, heat, moisture, everything else there is. It's the best magazine pouch that's ever made. And if you look at Tango Down, Larry Vickers actually had them uh, recreate this pouch. And you can get it, I think, in black and FDE, but it's just for like Glock 17s and 19s. Uh, but it's there's no sharp corners. It's lightweight. This thing has to be from the 80s. Yeah. You know, and I've been using it for 16 years and it still looks like that. So that's a little piece of forgotten trivia history. But yeah, I still I still carry that. This is where I carry a spare my actual I carry two 1911 spare mags and they are carried in one of them is in a price western leather uh single pouch that Dennis Martin of CQB services from England gave me and the other is in a 1990s mid 1990s blade tech single mag pouch that has a gun sight raven embossed on it that I got at the pro shop um so and they still they're still going strong from you know the 90s so it depends on what it is quality gear uh works real well I've got a duty holster for a full size 1911. It's a Safariland 6280. It's the SLS roll top. Yeah. Uh, that was Craig Douglas's, and he gave that to me. So if I've got a full uh, full size 1911, I can carry carry it in that. Um, I am still using the same 1911 Jeff Cooper taught me how to shoot with. Um, it has had over 300,000 rounds through it. It has had a blued finish, uh, SS Chromium M metal away finish that Chuck Taylor recommended. And after I dropped his gun and saw it didn't scratch it, I got one. <laughs> I wore that off of it, and it's currently on an MP3 frame with a Rogard slide, and the MP3 is worn through. Yeah. Uh, I have shot out the Springfield barrel, a Wilson combat barrel, and it's on an Ed Brown barrel now. And I had shot out six set of internals on it. And the frame has been cracked and rewelded. And the thing still runs and runs. All right. Before we get get away from the, the gun sight thing, uh, you, um, you used a couple of terms I would like to clarify for the audience for those that aren't uh, versed on it. You mentioned orange gun sight. And that was the original API, American Pistol Institute, that Cooper founded. And then he sold it 
And is that, that area is referred to a gray gun site? Is that correct? It is. Yes, sir. And then Buzz um, Mills bought the property back and it came and back. And gun site. And it's back in the, but gun site people came back and are running it now. Yes, sir. Under so Mills. 76 to 93, 92, 93. Um, the Raven, the signs and everything were brown with orange on them. Mm-hmm. When the Colonel sold it, um in 92 or 93 uh he was still there for about a year and the owner at the time um had a disagreement with him and banned him from teaching banned him from the ranges and the problem with that was that when you get on number one the problem with it is jeff cooper is gun sight that that is all there is to it so once you drive through the gate you have to your right an instructor housing complex. Then behind that, you have the campground, which actually started off life as an airfield. Then up on the hill, you have the sconce, which is the colonel's house. Then behind that, you had the gunsmithy and the classroom or the pro shop, the classroom, and then the main offices. So to get to the colonel's house, you literally have to drive onto gun site. There's no way to his house unless you go straight through gun site. So it created a sort of an issue because he banned the colonel from teaching and from the ranges, yet the colonel had to live on gun site because part of the agreement was that the colonel and Mrs. Cooper would live there as long as they were alive. So that was part of the agreement of the sale of it, you know. And so from around 93 to 1999, um, 2000 um the colonel did not teach at gunsite if he taught uh he taught several classes at thunder ranch for clint smith um he taught at the nra's whittington center and he did a few other things during that time frame as well but he did not teach at gunsite so as soon as the new owner took it he repainted the signs and he painted them gray so it was a simple way for them to differentiate between what era gun site you went to because the new owner between 93 and 2000 um, had changed the doctrine, had started doing different things. Now, I'll, I'll grant him this. He had some world-class instructors during that time. Uh, Harry Humphreys was out there, Chris Karachi, uh, Herschel Davis, um, a handful of, you know, really hardcore been there, done that guys that uh, did a, did a lot of excellent instruction, Bill Jeans, Jack Fur, uh, Bill Jeans went on to do Morgan Consulting, Jack Fur went on to teach for Clint Smith at Thunder Ranch, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, so he had some good instructors, he just changed the doctrine away from what the colonel did and whatnot, and so as soon as Buzz Mills came in, uh, the place had been run down, and Buzz Mills really—he's um, a nice guy. Uh, he's always been very nice to me, and was always very accommodating with me. Um, but he—he he realized Jeff Cooper was gun sight, so he dumped over a million dollars into it, revitalized it, and then brought the colonel back in. Um, so it's—it's it's not a—and you know, it's—it's it's not a necessarily Weaver nineteen eleven school. Uh, they teach a version of the Weaver now, uh, from what I understand, and uh, you'll see Glock 9mm in the instructor's holsters and whatnot like that. Um, what what I think that they still do, uh, 
better than anyone else to my knowledge is the length of the class and the structure they have. So the five day class, you wanna you wanna go for basic handgun, you can go to the five day two fifty and stay there for and this isn't a this is not a gun site advertisement, but <laughs> the history of it, you know, you can go out there, take five days and then never go back as long as you practice what you had there. But you want to build on that, you go back for another five days and uh you do your 350 and that's your intermediate pistol and then you go back for another five days and you do your 499 and that's your doctorate degree you know that's your advanced pistol but you've got to have somebody that is willing to dedicate themselves to going out there willing to keep up with the practice willing to if you go through 250 350 499 by the time you get through with lodging meals food all that you know you're well into 15 grand at this point in, in time and there are not a lot of people that have that um and um i still think it's a wonderful idea if you can actually do it and that's why i've made the comment if you if you've got somebody that's got an e-ticket or expert from 499 i'll put them up against anybody in the world as far as their skills go for defensive pistol craft but at the same time um you know you look at range master you look at tom gibbons um you look at uh, guys like him that are doing what he does that have a traveling show and he can take somebody in two or three days and get them up to a very good level of skill, you know, and they're not out that money and they didn't have to go halfway across the country to spend a week out there. So I don't disparage either one of them. I think they're both great. You know, I think both types are great, but that was back in, back in the seventies when he started doing this, um, classes were, I think they were four hundred dollars uh, back in the late seventies, and they were five and a half days, Monday through Saturday. Saturday was a half day, so you'd spend four hundred dollars. You go out there for five and a half days, and it was six hundred rounds of ammo. And in five and a half days and six hundred rounds of ammo, he was producing highly competent shooters. Um, but that's all dependent on the will to actually learn you know if you're going out there because you're sent it's just like now you know yeah. you can take uh you can take a, a convenience store clerk um a 50 year old female convenience store clerk from athens georgia and send her to tom's basic um combative pistol one school and within two or three days and 600 rounds of ammo, she's going to have a really solid foundation, really good life-saving skills. And then you take a police officer and put them through a 40-hour, five-day course, and they're just there because they have to go through it so that they can get their job. And she'll outperform that young guy that went through the academy just because of the way that they're learning. She has more of a motivation, even though you think uh -huh. the young guy going through the 40 hours should have one. It's not always the case. Um, but I don't, I don't spirit either school. I think both of them are great. Um, so, and I, I think if yeah. anybody gets the chance, they should try both yeah. types, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, you do get a, a full immersion if you go out for so like a five day class, that is a huge commitment in time wise and money wise to get out there. Uh, my only trip to gun site was for a shotgun class. And I, I know what it set me back. And of course, part of that was I wanted to go to, you know, go make the pilgrimage and go see where all of it began. And it, so it was worth it to me from that regard. Um, 
And so, you know, if you're interested in firearms training, that's where our everything that we're doing today in firearms training originated out of gunsight. Whether it has gone on and changed over to other things, it all still goes back to all that. If you want to go back and, and watch or listen to the episode last week with Daryl Bolke, you know, that's how things spread throughout the West Coast. What we also talked about, there really wasn't an Eastern East Coast analog to that, but it still all kind of grew out of the same era and you know that same teaching that was coming out of there um we've been going a little over an hour um any other cooper anecdotes or any of the old time gunside anecdotes you'd like to share with our audience before we sign off um i'll think of one in just a second but bringing up um that podcast with bulky Mm -hmm. um you had mentioned mid-south yeah. in that and um tonight i ate dinner with a guy that was naval special warfare and we got to talking and he said you know back when i went to mid-south and i said what <laughs> and he and we just i was like what'd you just say are you listening yeah. in on my phone conversations or what he's like no why <laughs> and well my friend lee weems was just talking about mid-south he was like oh yeah i went back when john had just won all that stuff so i mean that's and he was an east coast UDP yeah. SEAL guy. So that's where he went back in, you know, the late 80s, early 90s was there. And you go out on the West Coast, you got the West Coast SEALs going over to Gunsight and yeah. whatnot. Um, trying to think if there's anything else I could tell you. Uh, and, and, my head. and Shane's law enforcement training is going to be very similar to mine in that he came up through the Georgia Public Safety Training Center as well. So we have to be kind of careful when we're talking in a setting like this, we're going to be saying things that each other understands what each other is saying without having to give the context to it. But when, uh, when I went through the Academy, um, of course, again, I'm 18. I've got a custom Novak 1911 45. And so when I went through the Academy, they were heavy on Glock 22s and shooting from isosceles and i'm out shooting a single action weapon from weaver and um my class coordinator at the time uh did not like that did not like me and he went on to be a very powerful person in the state and uh retired recently but he called me last week to ask me gun advice uh so we we kind of made up but at, at the time to to mirror off of that they they were very heavy into uh, they had just come off of nines and went to forties and, uh, they were very heavy on to a minor caliber under 45, um, pistol and shooting from isosceles. And they were very against the weaver and very against a single action weapon. So it's kind of strange because I'm taking everything that I learned and coming here as law enforcement, they're like, no, that's all wrong. Well, no, it's not. So it's kind of a bridge. And I, I don't, um, I don't care if you're, if you shoot Weaver, I don't care if you shoot Sosley's, I don't care if you shoot a Glock, a SIG, uh, uh, 1911, a 45, a 9, a 38 special, it doesn't really matter, you know, you make your own choice and you do whatever, most of them are going to work, it's more of a mindset, um, that, that is one thing if you, you, um, knew the colonel, he would harp on, uh, he, uh, he didn't really care, he knew what he, thought worked better but he'd tell you in a heartbeat uh 22 through the tear duct would be better than a peripheral hit with a 44 
And so um, Mrs. Cooper, the countess, Janelle, she had two pistols he trained her with. Um, one was her working gun and the other was her presentation gun. Uh, her working gun was a Smith & Wesson Model 60 stainless chief special with staghorn grips loaded with standard pressure 125 grain federal NICLAD bullets. So that's what she'd drop in her purse to go to pick up the mail because that's another thing about the colonel. You wrote him, it was a P.O. box in Paulding. So it was a 20-minute one-way trip to go get the mail because they didn't deliver out the gun site because the road was so bad. Um, and uh, so that's what she would carry if she was out and about. Her presentation gun, which I've got actual old 35-millimeter footage, or uh, not footage, but pictures of this stuff back at the house because there weren't digital cameras when uh -huh. I was out there. Uh, if they were, they were too expensive and I'd rather spend the money on a gun than I would a digital camera at the time. Right. So, but her, her presentation gun was a model 36 chief special. It was a Royal blue polymer finish that Robbie Bartman did a one-off of the only kind in the world. And it had, um, I don't remember if it was ivory or if it was Coca-Cola wood stocks on it, but it, it had some type of stocks on it. It had the countess engraved in sterling silver on the side and the reason it's called countess is because the colonel was the guru and the proper title for a guru's wife is contessa or countess so that's where he came <laughs> up with that so but it had the countess engraved in silver on the side the front sight had three real diamonds embedded in the ramp and it had the same bullets but the bullets had diamonds embedded into the end with it and the uh, colonel thought it would be very nice if a creep got shot with a diamond, you know, <laughs> so that's why I've had those put into it. His, uh, uh, his carry gun, um, I, I've seen him with, with only, I'd seen him carry only two guns. At first he was carrying a Springfield, um, 1911 GI kit that was built, a GSP gun sight service pistol built up on, um, in his later years, he carried a lightweight commander. And that lightweight commander was a two-tone blued and then just silver frame. It had an extended thumb safety. Uh, it had Jeff Cooper's signature in laden gold on the top of it. Um, had a, a trigger job to it. And uh, it had excess sights. Uh, he was friends with Ashley Emerson. So it had a V-notch rear. And it had a white dot front, uh, no tritium. Uh, didn't he didn't carry anything for tritium, and he had reasons for that. Uh, but that's how his pistol was set up. Um, you know, four and, a, uh, four and a quarter inch commander slide, lightweight commander, seven round uh, frame, uh, basic stocks, gold signature, good trigger, extended thumb safety, and then Emerson sights, uh, excess Emerson sights. And he carried it with. 230 grain federal, or I'm excuse me, Hornady, 230 grain jacketed trunicated cone Hornady, which basically imagine a 40 caliber full metal jacket round, except the size of a 45. And that's what he carried. Um, so uh, I know that, you know, he had three daughters and he gave uh, one of them, um, he actually gave a star uh, 45, the Spanish. Um, single action 
gun. So it's aluminum frame. It's kind of like of a hybrid between a commander officer size. Mm-hmm. And uh, he carried it cocked and locked. Uh, but he thought a lot of those little guns um, carried a lot, shot a little. Uh, and he actually, believe it or not, gave a Glock 27 uh, for one of his daughters to carry because it was compact. It was lightweight. It was at least 40 caliber. It wasn't a 45, but it was 40, but she could manage it and she could carry it in her purse without much trouble. Uh, so a lot of this, when I hear people say certain things about the colonel, um, they didn't really know him. They, they know what he wrote, but they might not know how to interpret what he wrote. So he's a lot more, he wasn't as dogmatic as some people think, but that's, uh, and the reason I know why one of them has is because when I was cleaning guns in his armory, I found a Glock box. I'm like, what is this? You know, oh, we gave this to this daughter. You know, she's carrying a Glock. Well, it works, you know, blah, blah, blah. So um, last two things, I know you got to go. But uh, if he he was also very fond of two weapons if he was going to build a military. So the rifle he would choose is an HKG3, which is a 308 HK91 with a telescopic stock and a bipod with a good trigger and with a trigicon reflex uh, tritium fiber optic sight, non-magnified. He had one of those in his armory. He was very fond of it for a military arm. Um, And if you go to Pantio and you look under make ready, you have to go to the gun sight thing and then you go over to the far right and I think it's like make ready or something like that. It's, um, scroll down it's called rifle works and so the first part of it is a marine corps class he's doing a 250 pistol for and the second part is a marine corps class he's doing a 223 carbine class for and he's got that gun in that video and he shows with the bipod on it how you can thrust it forward as you go into prone it'll kick the bipod out and how you can shoot it without the stock on it and get hits on it uh, but that was a rifle he thought would be a, a good, uh, good battle rifle. And then he also said if he was going to equip a modern military, he would issue them the CZ-75 9mm. Now, would so, they have carried that cocked and locked or in double action mode? What, the CZ-75? Is it to, yeah, but what <laughs> other way is there to carry but cocked and locked? <laughs> so, you know, I had to ask. I know, I know. He... Um, and well, I could go on for days, but, you know, he had a specific system for double action as well. Uh, he had four different ways to deploy it. So, and you, you can read about that in uh, To Ride, Shoot Straight, and Speak the Truth. And he goes into detail about how you would deploy a, a double action uh, pistol. Um, the easiest way and the way he preferred to do it was to cock it, but you've got to cock it with your thumb of your off hand. So you draw and it cocks as you're coming up. So it's not cock here, but it's grip the pistol, hands joined together, and you literally cock it as you're coming up. So uh, that was the way he preferred to do it. Uh, That was what he thought the most user-friendly, time-saving, eloquent way to get it done was. And that actually works pretty good. You just have to be practiced with it. And even if you're very practiced, if you don't try it, you know, if you don't practice with it weekly, you're you're going to miss the hammer eventually. But that was that was his solution to cocking it on the way up. Uh, now, granted, uh, double action pistols 
back then had a much harder trigger pull than those out today. You know, right. they've got some like the Langdon Berettas and uh, the CZ Shadows and uh, a bunch of different ones. The, the trigger is much more manageable than it was back then. Uh, back then, 12 pounds was light for the double action pull on some yeah. guns. So that's where that came from. All right. Um, we'll have to do another episode kind of like this because I've enjoyed um, the wall back through history. And I just, I'm worried that so much of this, this information is going to be lost, you know, because the only way to find it's actually in old magazines or letters and um, personal and personal recollections like this. And so one of the things I hope to do with this show, as long as it keeps going is to be able to capture some of these type things on video. And I know how much Colonel Cooper and, and Mrs. Cooper meant to you. And I do appreciate you coming on uh, tonight and sharing this uh, with the audience. Cause you and I've had these conversations a lot of times in person or on the phone. And I really wanted to get some of this, uh, documented for the ages thank you sir um i promised uh wayne dobbs i don't know what range master conference it was but he he i mean he got up with conviction i mean it was like he was in a southern baptist church and he was you know speaking over me he uh he he he's told me you've got to get this out where somebody besides just you have it in your safe mm-hmm. as far as the letters and whatnot did. i told him i'd get around to it 2015 um, yeah, I'm, I'm getting there. Um, so, but what I'll, what I'll actually do is, uh, I'll try to put some of this in some type of format I can send to you at least, Okay. you know, so you can see some of the period stuff or whatnot. Um, but I, I appreciate it. It does give me an excuse to go back down memory lane. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and again, I know how, what your personal connection with them was. And I thank you for coming uh, on tonight and sharing this with all the people on the internet that, uh, that will see it and listen to it later. Yes, um, because it is things that, that, you know, we just have short set short-term memories now, uh, because of the way the, the world moves so fast and we just have to remember where we came from. We do. Um, one of the books I was looking for was the modern technique of the pistol by Mm -hmm. Greg Morrison, who Mm -hmm. was, he actually wrote that as his thesis for his PhD. Uh, That was his thesis project, but he was one of Jeff Cooper's uh, range masters. Um, I think if you look it up on eBay or Amazon, it's like four or $500, which is a fraction of what it's actually worth. Uh, But uh, you know, I, I don't know if Gunsight still sells in the pro shop, uh, I was just out there a few few months ago, and I didn't even look for it. But uh, it's not you can't get it on Kindle. You know this uh, book was written. I've got a copy of it that I think I got on Kindle. Let me know if you can find it because I couldn't find it. Um, what I was getting at is I I got um, I got to thinking about it the other day, and I didn't know where mine was at. So I text uh, Dick O'Hearn. Mm-hmm. Um, and cause I usually, if somebody has something like that, it's usually Dick has borrowed it. Uh, and the, uh, Lee knows Dick from training and whatnot, but, uh, I text him and I said, Hey, do you have the modern technique of the pistol? Yes, I do. Can I get it back? Yes, you can. You know, so, uh, it's, 
if you, what I'm getting at is you can read Jeff Cooper's books, you can read articles and whatnot from him, but if you want to get a true historical view of the modern technique as far as like a, not historical, but a technical, like a step-by-step view, uh, that's the book you want. Um, it's, it's very, very doctrinal uh, in the way the modern technique was done. Uh, hardcover on Amazon is $80.17 and paperback is right at 50. Um, I'm pretty sure that once upon a time I got that in, in a Kindle format. I know I've read the book and yes. I've got, and I've got it in some format somewhere. But, uh, go if ahead. You find that I'm, no, that was it. If you find it, I'm very interested of it because, uh, um, I've got uh, some of the kernel. I've got all of the the originals, and then I've got Lindy, one of his daughters, who runs the Jeff Cooper Legacy Foundation. And I'll shamelessly plug them. Um, basically, what happens is you can. She doesn't sell anything anymore, other than maybe patches, challenge coins, and pins. But it's the Jeff Cooper Legacy Foundation. You can Google search that. Uh, you can buy those from her. Uh, used to be able to buy some of the books. The books are all now handled through another uh, venue, but you can donate to them and so on and so forth. And what the Jeff Cooper Legacy Foundation does is it takes people that want to go to gun site but cannot afford to, and it gives them an opportunity. So you can go online, you can fill out your application to uh, get a scholarship and so it's reviewed and if you meet a certain criteria then the jeff cooper legacy foundation will pay for your scholarship at gunsight so they've awarded a lot of recipients you've had military you've had police you've had uh, armed citizens and they paid their tuition out there to keep the memory of jeff cooper alive uh and his teachings um but i've got I've got, she did a series of a hundred, I want to say it was a hundred leather bound books. So it's very nice gilded golden uh, pages, uh, leather bound, very spectacular books. And I've got number 11 of each one of those. Um, and then I've got some of his books on Kindle, but w- one of the things that I just, from a, again, standpoint of history, if you want to see the actual technical way, the modern technique was done, uh, you want you want the modern technique of the pistol. So if you find that on uh, electronic format, I'd I'd like to know because I'd I'd be interested in that. I just looked through my Kindle library and it's not in there, so it must have been a paperback okay. book that I that I okay. had. All right. Um, anything that uh, I didn't ask you about that you would like to to mention tonight before we sign off? Not that I can think of, sir. All right, and just so we can have a hundred percent track record uh we have to mention eric Gellhouse because oh, he's a gunsight instructor and he wrote for swat magazine right and, and he and some, he shoots, shoots an mmp does he oh that's right yeah. you know i read a uh i read a blurb on him taking the sig academy pistol mounted optics instructor at gunsight uh-huh. he said something about i think an mmp and an acro maybe right yeah, that's become an inside joke that uh, Bulky sits and drinks listening to these episodes. Every time he hears Gail House get mentioned, he has to take a drink. And so I, I couldn't let him get through an episode without uh, getting a Gail House swig. Yes, sir. All right. Well, Shane, as always, it's fun to talk with you. 
And I hope our audience enjoys this episode as much as I did. And uh, thank you for everything that you've done uh, for me over the years. You know, go take a class from this guy, stay away from that guy. Uh, and all the conversations that we've had throughout the years have been very beneficial. So thank you for that. You're welcome. And I appreciate it. Um, I've had a lot. I mean, like well over 10,000 hours worth of training. So it's, I'd, I'd rather you as a friend get the best out of the limited time you have. So <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, uh, we'll have to do another episode where we go into some of the other, other training out there. Uh, yes, but uh, I, I thought this would be a good way to get a, a good, uh, um, you know, snapshot of your experiences with, with Cooper personally. Yes, sir. All right. Well, folks, uh, you know, your time is your most important asset, and I thank you for spending your time here with us on the That Wings Guy Show.